0: everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified emotionally focused therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. And we have a very exciting guest today. We have Dr. Sylvina Irwin. She is one of our EFT trainers in Los Angeles, California, and she's the director of the Los Angeles Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy, LA-CEFT. And she also has an EFT resource center that she's a co-founder of, and she's going to talk to us more about that at the end of the video. But we just want to welcome her on today for our special topic. We're going to talk about trauma and how to help our trauma clients using emotionally focused therapy. So, Sylvina, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank
1: you, Annabelle. I'm really happy to be here with you and you all.
0: Mm -hmm. So, tell us a little bit more for some of the folks who maybe aren't as familiar, because I know we have so many trainings, but for some of our EFTers who might not be as familiar with who you are, can you tell us a little bit more about your background as a therapist and how you came to be a trainer at EFT as a trauma specialist?
1: Sure, absolutely. So... Um, I began my work and trauma training actually in 1998, and it's been a topic that has been near and dear to me, uh, you know, for a very long time. And I first started my training working with Latino populations and working with very very traumatized folks that. Um, suffered a lot of immigration trauma, mm. and were fleeing, seeking asylum uh, from state-sponsored violence, torture, abductions, things of that sort. And I just uh, felt inspired and a sense of urgency, really to help these really marginalized communities. And I just did the deep dive into learning how to help them. Um, and it just it took off from there. Wow. One thing I can say is that um, it was mostly an individual work at that time. As I got exposed to EFT, I became very interested um, and struck actually by how potent the attachment system is to heal the effects of trauma. And so that really opened up another world of how to really leverage attachment for healing trauma, which was um, much needed part of my work.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's so important. I love how you say it's a much needed part of our work, even for those of us who maybe don't specialize in trauma, or we don't specifically market to clients with trauma. It finds its way into all of our practices. And it's really helpful just to know how to help. Um, You know, and I I love how you said that you started off with, you know, clients that came from really marginalized and you know, we're seeking asylum. You know, folks that had some massive, massive trauma, probably the worst things that a human being can experience at the hands of another. And so it's so important to be trained in trauma and be able to help. And for me, too, as an EFTR, I think if you can handle the most extreme cases, then everything else seems like a lot more manageable. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So can you start us off by helping some folks understand maybe a definition of trauma? And are there, is there a difference between trauma as in like I was mugged or I was tortured versus um, kind of attachment trauma as in I was neglected or emotionally abused by an attachment figure or something? Can you kind of help us understand sure. the difference?
1: I appreciate that because we use the term trauma a lot right? It's, it's thrown around a lot in our work. And um, I think it's helpful to kick off with a working definition that um, we can all sort of um, orient around. Um, So the, the working definition that I tend to embrace, which I know many do as well, is understanding trauma as an actual or perceived threat to the integrity of yourself. And the reactions include horror, terror, helplessness, and, um, it's overwhelming. At its core, it's overwhelming, and some of the features that you know we associate are a sense of isolation, powerlessness, um, disorganization. It tends to come with a lot of shame, uh, loss of control, and ultimately, it renders uh, an individual with a shattered sense, shattered sense of basic trust and safety in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it also erodes a positive view of the self and uh, view of others as safe havens. So it actually has far-reaching effects on a person's organization and development and uh, just way they navigate the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about big T trauma and little T trauma, and if you have a lot of little T traumas, does that stack up to be big T trauma? You know, um, I see you nodding. I think you know what I'm referring to. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually would... Um, And neglect, neglect is actually one of the, um, considered one of the more severe forms of trauma as well, because you're not even recognized as existing. So -hmm. the sense of isolation is is quite profound.
0: You know, what's sad is I actually think the impact of neglect is also neglected. (laughs) You know, we tend to dismiss it as, oh, well, you weren't in war, you weren't mugged, it's not that big of a deal. And really, it has a profound impact on them. It
1: absolutely does. It absolutely does, and I actually find that working with neglect is one of my more challenging um, forms of trauma when it presents in working. I
0: would with agree.: it. I would agree. Absolutely. I, f- I find with my neglected clients, a lot of them have no attachment frame. They're either avoidant or they just it's like they don't know how to long for something they've never had, and it's No reference point. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, how how do you teach, especially an adult, something that seems so fundamental to everybody else? You know, and it's definitely challenging. And a lot of them don't realize what they didn't had until some other point later in their life. And they're like, I didn't know I didn't have these things until I went someplace where I did or I had a relationship where I did. And then I realized, whoa, and it just kind of hits them like a stack of bricks. And Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think with trauma, it's easiest. I think most trauma therapists would recognize, this This is, I think, part of where we get into trouble in the field is that some therapists I've noticed or some schools of thought can be more dismissive towards little t traumas, I guess, you know, especially attachment-based traumas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If it's like if the person wasn't tortured, if they didn't have, they weren't in a car accident. If there was no like major physically yeah. violent event that matriculated to this trauma. Then they kind of dismiss it. Yeah. And for me, in my own self, I recognize that I have some clients that haven't had those obvious forms of trauma, but their responses—they've had attachment trauma, but their responses are extremely similar to somebody who has had a physical you know
1: absolutely because you're talking about day-to-day interactions in the world where they're getting feedback from their uh, caregivers from their peers you know negative feedback about their value their worth often it's the birthplace of uh, great shame and Mm -hmm. so absolutely the the impact can be very similar
0: Yeah. So for me, I think, and and tell me if you think this is right. To me, I think it really, the most important part is to look at the impact on the individual. And if you're seeing it show up in that way in their responses, then treat it accordingly, whether they've had that big T trauma or not.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree.
0: So you've talked a a bit about how trauma is the birthplace of a lot of shame, and certainly those of us who have had some trauma clients, for me, I, I, well, I do find this in women too, but I find a lot, a lot of shame in my male clients that have had trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about shame and how that is kind of birthed in trauma?
1: Absolutely. And it is so prevalent. I mean, I think this is one of the spots where therapists can get really stuck. And I know we talk a lot about how, how do we work with shame, but, you know, if we really think about, um, our experiences in the world as being a a very potent source of information about our value and our worth. If we're getting feedback from others that we are not worthy of love, if we are not worthy of connection, um, if other caregivers are not responsive to us and we're getting, um, if if caregivers are um, either neglectful or angry and critical, the way we make sense of that in the world is I must be bad. It must be me. There must be something wrong with me. And shame then, what it does is it makes one turn inward and it blocks connection. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can get very tricky as an EFT therapist because suddenly it's like there's this cloak of shame. It's like this third entity <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, that comes into the room and hijacks a person and takes them away. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that is absolutely a core feature of working with trauma is is the shame that is associated with it. I'm bad, I'm damaged, I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, and it's a deep entrenched sense of that.
0: Yeah, kind of like these bad things happened or I wasn't given love or connection because I'm bad in some way, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't worthy, right. and of course, the, you know, if you see yourself as unworthy in the world, can you imagine how that shadows your relationships with other human beings in the world? Absolutely. And subsequently, that can lead to additional trauma because you don't see your own worth. And so you don't, you fail to set boundaries because you don't see that worth. You don't feel that anyone else sees that worth. So in order to, you know, oftentimes have friendships or relationships around, you just, they tend to not set those boundaries because they don't, they don't see themselves as worthy, as worthy of saying no, or I'm valuable
1: Well, another piece of it, too, is um, because shame can turn someone inward and block a relational um, uh, stance with another, uh, it also blocks a corrective experience of letting in love and connection. So it self-reinforces the isolation that is so inherent in trauma.
0: That's right. So kind of what you're saying is because it – it causes people to turn inward, right? They don't. They don't go to other to have a new relational experience to seek soothing or comfort or reassurance. They withdraw within themselves, and then, of course, on the outside, that can almost evoke confirmatory messages that reinforce, "See, I'm not worthy either." You know, right. this is happening because I'm not worthy, and it's that, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy or the self-feeding cycle. And that's, that's awful, too.
1: It is. It is. And it can be very overwhelming for therapists.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I heard you talk about, so this goes, speaks to kind of the window of tolerance. So when we see clients that come into session, I've kind of noticed with my trauma clients, they kind of show up in one of two ways. And this isn't certainly a, a fact. This is just a pattern I've noticed is that, well, I guess as with all clients they are either super withdrawn or they can be highly escalated depending on, you know, how they've reacted to this. And so when you're in session, how can a therapist kind of understand that this is a trauma response? How do they, or because sometimes clients aren't very open about the fact that they've had trauma and the therapist kind of, figures it out from their responses or sometimes they are very honest about it. Do you speak openly and say, this is your trauma coming up?
1: So so maybe I can just back up a a moment because you're making reference to window of tolerance and I just want to make sure everyone knows, you know, what we're talking about. Um, And, you know, when we speak about window of tolerance, we're talking about sort of that optimal zone of arousal, emotional arousal, that a person is engaged, they have uh, working, they, and they have a working distance, so they can also reflect and express what's happening to themselves.
0: And it's kind of the window from which in they can tolerate exactly. that interaction emotionally.
1: It's a, exactly, and it's a working zone. And um, one of the core features and one of the distinguishing features of working with trauma is folks have a very narrow window Uh, of tolerance for emotional experiencing, which again, can be very tricky for EFT therapists because we are trained, you know, to go right for the affect for primary affect, heighten, expand. And um, we may be caught off guard when suddenly we've tipped into someone going into a dissociated state or into hyper arousal and and feeling totally flooded. Um, So one piece, and I know you named this, but I want to highlight it. Our assessment is so important. We often um, aren't asking explicitly about trauma because oftentimes it's not volunteered. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sometimes it is, and then we can, you know, be, you know, go with that in our assessment. But a, a lot of times. Um, you know, when I'm offering supervision or looking at cases, I'll ask, you know, hey, this seems like this. There might be some trauma in in the, in the mix. Is there trauma in the in this person's history? And oftentimes, I get the question or the response, "I don't know." <laughs> so, what that's telling me is that we're not doing a lot of. Um, explicit assessment for trauma. So that's sort of part one. We, we do need to be doing that. That being said, oftentimes we ask explicitly and it's not brought forward. You know, alliances um, sometimes really needing to be in place solidly before someone discloses trauma. So that all being said, um, you know, when someone has a very, very narrow window of tolerance, uh, we do often suspect that it is the impact the the effects of trauma Um, and we are tracking it from the very beginning of okay how do we stay in this person's optimal zone and pacing is key when we're working with trauma pacing is key slower is faster I know we talk about that in general practice in EFT as well uh, but it is especially so in working with uh, affective experiencing in traumatized individuals who do not have a safe way of
0: experiencing their emotions. So what you're saying is if you master that skill with your trauma clients, it'll be a lot easier to do it with your non-trauma clients. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So much of this translates. Um, It's just we kind of keep an extra
0: eye, you know. Yeah. So when you're tracking, do you actually say this is your trauma or how does your trauma get activated and come alive between the two of you? Do you actually use the words? How do you... I might
1: not ask it like that because that's a very cognitive question. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would do is I would fold it in. You know, if, if I know this to be true, for example, in someone's history and when their cycle gets activated, you know, we need to make sense of the chaos. So a separate, a separate moving part, and um, we, we're not going to go into it right now, but I just want to acknowledge it. A separate moving part is how to integrate trauma into a cycle Right? So I won't necessarily ask a cognitive question of, so how does trauma show up in your relationship? But when you're walking through and starting to organize a couple cycle, it becomes evident that there are these moments where the past really starts to blur the present. And so we go very slowly, very deliberately, and we start to make sense of the terror that a person enters into when they start to feel unsafe in the relationship and they start to get triggered. And then we layer in all kinds of validation, to make sense of what's happening, right? It makes so much sense. This is such a scary moment for you. This brings you back to that moment when you were you know, a little girl and um, you had to hide under the bed to keep yourself safe. It makes so much sense that you're looking for danger at every corner um, and everything is feeling scary and dangerous. So you can fold it into your validations as you organize and make sense of how the past blurs the present.
0: Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so. So what if you have a double trauma client and so and, and I want to come back to the window of tolerance but I want to bring some other things forward first and then go back. <clears throat> so if you're you have a couple come in and they're double trauma and they are highly escalated because they're both you know tipping off I found that couples either are highly escalated around this, or some couples I've found are very respectful to each other's trauma, and they recognize it, and they're able to kind of concede at different points, like, okay, this is more important, this is about you, but other times it's like a rush to, you know, both of them are throwing these things at you, and it's like, who do I come to first? How, what do you do with that?
1: Right. <laughs> well, that's, that's a very good question, and very often we do have folks with very, very complex trauma histories on both sides of the street. And it can feel chaotic, like just trains off the track all over the place. And you know, what I would say first is how important it is for the therapist to feel grounded and in control of the session because it can just go haywire very quickly if you have an escalated couple. Like you, I know you mentioned some couples can be very respectful and honoring and um, give space to their partners. Other couples are just popping all over the place and getting activated. And where I would go with that is how important it is to stop them because that's not safe for anybody. And it gets the therapist totally
0: organized.
1: And that's not going to create any safety and making everyone feel miserable. So I would just, I would stop and slow it way down and let each person know I need to make sense of what's happening for each of you. Because there's so much happening here and I need to catch up. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I don't have a rule of thumb in terms of who I go to first. <laughs> right. I'm really feeling it clinically. That's part of just our attunement. And if I have someone that is flipping into a panic attack, I'm going to go to that
0: person. Right. Right. So it's, it's more also, sort of- also, I think it also shows up too when even when you've been able to put it into the cycle and, and maybe you're trying to go for your first enactment and it's a, you know, just the fact that their partner has pain sets them off and it's like, you have pain. Well, I got pain. And then it becomes this competition almost of whose pain matters most. And I definitely think that's one of the most challenging parts for therapists when they have the highly escalated trauma couples is like, okay, Obviously, we all see that they both have pain, but, you know, that window of tolerance is so narrow, they can't even hold the fact that their partner has pain because their pain comes up. How do you kind of cope with that in session when it's that, feels like that competition between whose pain is the greatest?
1: Well, a lot of it is naming process, right? If you were just a therapist to say, I need us to slow down, guys, and look what's happening here, and you start to track The process of what's happening between them and you can show each person i see you're hurting and when you hurt you strike right and you feel the strike and that's painful and you strike back harder and it's an attack you guys are attacking each other and i see you are both hurting right now and you are both hurting so much it's hard to see how your partner's hurting so you start to just name and reflect and go to process and just kind of take one layer of it and Mm -hmm. then when things start to slow down a little bit you can do a bit of a deeper dive on this side of the street and then a bit of a deeper dive on this side of the street but it's really the the pacing is important and again naming process and stopping it and letting each person know i see your pain Mm -hmm. i see how much you're hurting right now and when you hurt tell me this is when you get angry is that what's happening right now so you're naming the action tendency that's showing up in the room and you're continuing to stitch a new narrative that that's about pain. And the part, and you, you kind of do that in tandem. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: can it's, I, hard. it's hard, it feels like whack-a-mole sometimes. It does, it does. And so you mentioned, you know, can you give us maybe a little bit of a brief glimpse of what it might look like when we do start to go a little bit deeper?
1: Sure, well, and again, um, the pacing is really, really important. Um, but I would first, if we have a real escalated couple, I would really want to make sure that I have some space. So I might say to the person that is not being, oh, I'm sorry, just something just popped up, um, on my screen. (laughs) Okay. It, it left. Sorry. (laughs) Um, for the person who I'm not going to be working with in the moment, I would say, I really need to understand what's happening to your partner in this moment. Um, so I need a little bit of space to do that and I will get to you too. I need to understand what's happening for both of you, right? Can you hang in with me so we can figure this piece out? So you get, uh, you, you, it's very collaborative. So you really try and make the collaboration.
0: Sounds Um, very similar to just regular, highly escalated couples.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate you highlighting that because it's not like a, suddenly a magic intervention, right? Right. We are very, very deliberate. Right. And then when we think about window of tolerance, one of the things that we want to start doing with someone is organizing the chaos, because if we think about trauma reactions and trauma responses, it is oftentimes the, an individual is in the throes of chaos and they don't know what is happening. They just know that they are activated. They oftentimes don't even know what they're telling themselves. It just, it happens zero to 60 and nothing flat. So we are slowing someone down and starting to ask them, what are you telling yourself? And we're stringing together their perceptions and we're starting to organize the chaos. we do thin conjectures, again, staying in that window of tolerance. A lot of this is based on the individual.
0: So what I, what I hear you saying, so this is really good that it it's, is very similar to even a regular, highly escalated couple, non-trauma couple, but, and it, I think the difference for therapists when we're aware that there's trauma, we want to be more sensitive because we know that that window of tolerance is so narrow, and we know that we're dealing with pain a little bit differently that's a lot deeper, but what I hear you saying is that, and even just like regular couples, they may go zero to 60, but your ability to comb through what happens to them in that zero to 60 might be a lot easier going, I guess, or easier, more easily accessible than a trauma client. So when you're really slowing down this process for them, it's just going to, sounds like, take you probably a little bit longer, slow is fast, you know, going slower to comb through and help them organize and make sense as to what happens for them in those zero to 60 moments, what they tell themselves that whole process.
1: Absolutely, and especially when you start to integrate, um, you know, if there are, it's the five alarm fire, you know, so if there is danger, there is going to be a massive, massive reaction and response to that based on trauma histories. Life is dangerous, this is, and, and we know that already that happens, you know, with the attachment system, it is a danger cue, but then you add to that the trauma response. And it is, um, again, it is chaotic, and we start to organize that for people and give them a sense of what's really happening in that moment so they can start having a more coherent narrative of, of the here and now.
0: Hmm. So tell me, tell us a little bit more about, so let's go back to the window of tolerance now. So so we're working with a couple, a trauma couple, dealing with the cycle. How do therapists detect or kind of trying to map out maybe the window of tolerance or sense that their client might be tipping out of the window of tolerance, and what is maybe the best strategy to get them back in the window or Hmm. be cognizant of that?
1: Well, again, I want to really emphasize the importance of attunement. So when I'm working, well, when I'm working with all of my couples, I do this, but especially so with my trauma clients, um, you get to you get to know their markers and, and you can even ask them, you know, so exa- for example if I had if I'm working with uh, Trauma survivors and they are and we've assessed it. We've been talking about it. You know, I'm asking about dissociation I'm asking about flashbacks. So in my assessment um, And I will ask them how do you know, you know, this is happening? You know, what are some of the markers for you? What have you learned about what happens for you in these moments? someone might say um, I, I go into panic and I have panic attacks. Other people might say, I'm just checked out. Um, I will be very collaborative with them to say, you know, in our conversations, if you ever start to notice this starts to feel like too much, you know, let's talk about that. So I front load it mm-hmm. <laughs> with a lot of strategies to be very collaborative. That being said, there are absolutely moments where we're swimming along and then I can feel something start to... Um, you know, we're, we're pressing up against those fragile boundaries in the, in the window of tolerance. So some of the things that I'm looking for, I'm looking for breathing. I'm looking for skin tone. You can start to see splotchiness. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for, um, what they're doing with their hands. Sometimes you start to see rhythmic movement where they're trying to self soothe. Um, sometimes it's just, they've got the 10,000 mile stare and they're dissociated and they're gone. So there's a lot of markers, um, turning away, uh, going limp. So the body cues are, are critical. Body cues are key. So that's probably one of the bigger markers that I look at as opposed to things that are being articulated. Um, and again, breathing is an important
0: one. And when you sense that they've tipped out, Uh what's a good, what, what do we do?
1: Okay. Um, so we can be tipping out into either a a dissociative state where someone is gone and really shut down and they're kind of in that freeze and gone, or they can tip into hyper arousal where you start to see, you know, and just kind of a a more panicky type of feeling. So the interventions are different Mm -hmm. depending on, you know, where they are. If someone, however, let me say something, there is something that is consistent across the board. And that is you stay with them. Mm -hmm. You notice it and you make explicit immediately that you are there with them. They are not alone. You tether yourself to them. Something just happened. We hit something that's really hard. That's okay. Let's just slow down. Let's just slow down. You give it space and you slow it down. You let them know you're here. Um, if someone is in a more of a kind of a flashback place, and this just gets this is part of just knowing your clients, right? So I, I'm having a hard time speaking in just sure. generalities. But if someone's in a flashback state, again, really slow. You ground them with your voice. You let them know that um, they're in your office. They're here with you. You bring them into, you're not heightening anything. <laughs> you know, you're bringing them into your, into their bodies. You know, do you feel your, um, do you feel your back against the chair? Can you hear the traffic outside the window? You anchor them in their senses and the here and now, and you let them know it's okay. We hit something that's really scary. I'm here with you and it's okay. And you, you soothe, you reassure
0: mm-hmm. that, Am I answering your question enough? Yeah. So you really, you bring them back basically, you know, especially if they've dissociated or they've kind of checked out, you you try to bring them back to the present, but in a very soothing and gentle, you know, kind of reminding them you're in a safe place now. You know, the harm can't, can't have, it can't hurt you anymore. It's kind of somatic experiencing in some way, you know.
1: And you Um, acknowledge that it makes sense that we hit a scary place.
0: And, and so would you go back and, and maybe talk about the trigger when I talked about this or we just talked about this and this is kind of what cued this exit or this response? Can we go back to this? Do we kind of process what so happened?
1: Once someone is really grounded, you know, you can't really do any sort of higher order processing if someone's in the throes of either a dissociated state or a panic state. So we really want to ground them. And, um, you know, I let them know, you know, you've really shared with me, I've really seen how terrifying these moments are for you. And yes, to your point, Annabelle, either in, you know, towards the close of the session, (laughs) because this can take a lot of time, or in the next session, you absolutely want to start connecting the cue with what just happened. And, it, and it's inform, information for the therapist of how slow we need to go and really keeping it, have that experiencing be very safe for the person. So um, the other piece of it is too, and you're not exactly asking this question, but it's kind of segueing into this is um, because of the tendency to flood or dissociate, this can make it make EFT therapists very anxious about going into emotion. Like, oh my gosh, I don't want to re-traumatize this person, I don't want to overwhelm this person, I don't want to, I don't want them to hate me, <laughs> you know, um, and so this can pose a real dilemma for the therapist, right? And here we are in EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, and saying, I don't want to go to emotion because it's too scary for them, and then it makes it too scary for me, um, So I want to say that this is a common stuck spot for therapists and we absolutely have to go into the emotion. We just have to go slow. We have to pace it. We have to know when to change levels. This is something actually we talk a lot about in our trainings, um, when to change levels to keep people in that working zone. Sue was just with us this past weekend in LA and she said something, I just want to quote her, which is, um, avoidance is the kryptonite of mental health. Mm. And I felt like that was so true. And, um, you know, because avoidance does two things. One, it makes, the more we avoid, the more we avoid more. (laughs) It makes us more vigilant to the things and more sensitized to the things we're avoiding. And then by doing that, we're never getting the opportunity. If we don't go into that dark space where we hurt and where we're scared and actually have an opportunity to have a corrective experience, it's never going to change. Right. You have to go there. So I say that in the context of what we're talking about because it's a period overwhelming for therapists working right. out, um, very fragile boundaries in a window of tolerance.
0: And if therapists aren't yeah. able to go there, they're almost in some way, not not necessarily trying to, but they almost end up enabling the process to continue because the intervention has to happen at that deeper level.
1: That's right. We kind of reinforce the isolation that someone's feeling. they never, they never have someone in that darkness with them.
0: They're mm-hmm. always alone. Yeah. That's so extreme. you're you're saying the therapist really, you know, be be mindful, you know, be aware of the window of tolerance, but don't be afraid, you know, because it it sounds like too part of the trauma work is just like for all clients, we're all expanding their window of tolerance, but a regular client might have close to a normal frame, whereas a trauma client may have this much, much narrow. So we're really working much slower to increase that window of tolerance to make it bigger and bigger, but slower and slower. And you're saying, don't be afraid to go into the emotion, even though it might get messy, even though it might get scary. They need us to be in that darkness with them, to turn on the light, to show them there's no boogeyman. Kind of like when you're a kid and you're afraid of the boogeyman in the closet and mom comes in and turns on the light and opens the door and looks, pokes her head and see there's no boogeyman and says, come in here with me.
1: <laughs> That's right. And we're doing, we, we do, we need to go there with them. And it's so much more than just mirroring, mm-hmm. right? It is being in it with them. And so I yeah. feel you. I'm with you. You're not alone. Yes, and that in and of itself will regulate the emotion. You know, and over time, when you do that again and again and again, they start to build the emotional circuitry,
0: right? right. Mm-hmm. To start reg-
1: expanding that window of
0: tolerance right and safety that there's another human being out there who possibly can do this with me and not all people are dangerous and maybe somebody can be there for me
1: right we're their surrogate attachment figure Mm -hmm. until we can really bring their partner in in couples therapy um we're doing it individually you know it's 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 with us but um uh, until we can bring their partner in we are that surrogate attacking figure for them to safely experience what they've never really been able to safely experience.
0: Yeah it's kind of like like I've heard some some criticisms of people who don't really understand attachment theory I think that well or EFT for that fact is that oh EFT builds this unhealthy dependency on the therapist I'm thinking it's it's not quite like that when you say a surrogate it's like temporary they're lending us that trust we're temporarily building that safety kind of like a scaffold you know we're helping them to see that this experience is possible with another human being and then our goal is to transfer that safe emotional experience to their partner help them build that with their partner or whoever their closest attachment figure is
1: that's absolutely right and the the thing that's also wonderful in couples therapy is that the the partner is also observing Right. Observing you. I can't tell you how many times when I've had uh, partners go into flashbacks or dissociate or panic and I'm with them and I just really come up alongside them, how grateful the partners are. And they say, wow, you know, I learned so much by just watching you be with mm-hmm. her or him. Yeah they've never seen or experienced and especially if they are traumatized and right. they've never had a safe uh, secure connection so it's um it's, it's a powerful thing for everyone
0: yeah yeah because sometimes the partners are at a loss for what to do how to help their partner and, and we're modeling that in some ways and they're like okay i see you know and, and I, I love it too especially when we model repairs or apologies you know, um, or you see the client just freak out and you just go there with them because obviously these things happen at home too. And it's so powerful for their partner to see the way we handle it with them and process and repair and, and just go slow. It's so powerful for them. And they're like, ah, now I know what to do.
1: (laughs) That's right. And the other thing, I mean, I know we can just talk for a long time about this, but the other thing that, um, is a really uh, wonderful thing to observe is that oftentimes a partner, their instinct is to reach and to want to comfort. And that's a really lovely thing to observe and to make explicit, Mm -hmm. because that right there is what is so desperately needed. (laughs) They may not be able to ask for it, they may not be able to take it in, but to even see that instinct and that pull to take care of their partner and to make that explicit in the, in a process, in a process comment, is something to
0: build upon later as well. So, so you, you mentioned um, just briefly about, you know, we talked about how, you know, some therapists might be afraid to go into the emotion. That's, that's one thing we need to be aware of as therapists as we're working with trauma clients. Is there anything else that you think is important to mention that therapists may be myths that you, you covered the myth about if I go there, it's gonna make it worse, not mm-hmm. exactly the case, it actually makes it better, but there are any myths about working with trauma or emotions or places where you see therapists kind of struggle that you think is important for us to, to mention?
1: Yeah, um, thank you, that's a great question, Annabelle. Um, <clears throat> so yes, one is avoiding emotion is, is a big uh, spot, or going too fast. It's sort of both ends of the spectrum. It's not recognizing how overwhelming um, and terrifying uh, you know, uh, emotional experiencing can be. So it's either going too fast or not going at all. Um, and those two extremes. So the importance of going there. Um, mm-hmm. I already mentioned the importance of assessing in, his, in, uh, in, a, in our attachment histories. I think there's two other pieces that feel really important in terms of a therapist holding in mind. And one is a fearful avoidant attachment strategy. Oftentimes we're trained in our externships and in our EFT training about, you know, the pursue-withdraw cycle and how clean it is, (laughs) right? We use them more, Um, and it's, I say that a little tongue in cheek, obviously, Um, but the fearful avoidant strategy, attachment strategy can be very confusing, very overwhelming. It feels like cycles just flip around. Um, So understanding that for trauma survivors, the source of comfort, meaning the partner, is also the source of danger. And that gets confusing for everybody. It gets confusing for the partner, because they feel, you know, come here, go away. Mm -hmm. It's confusing for the, the, um, the, uh, the person who has that strategy, because they're in this desperate isolation with this urgency for connection, but can't access it. And it's terrifying. So it's a terrible bind that's confusing and overwhelming. And then the therapist feels like they can't organize a cycle. So um, being able to understand a fearful avoidance strategy is really, really important. Being able to understand how trauma um, responses impact the cycle and how it informs also a partner's responsivity, right? This is when we talk about a trauma-informed cycle, it impacts the whole system. And to be able to really organize that and place that can be enormously helpful for everybody. And I feel like that's not done enough in our work. So that would be something um, that's really important to keep in mind. I guess those are, uh, I think that kind of hits some of the core components that I would. Yeah. In this time frame. I mean, I know we could go on, but those are the Of big- course,
0: of course. And so just quickly, when you talk about fearful avoidance strategy, it's different from From anxious avoidant, and can you just maybe quickly help folks understand the difference?
1: Well, fearful avoidant is is more along the lines of you know having the longing, but being terrified of that closeness, right? So terrified
0: to act on it, kind of. Whereas anxious might like you know, (laughs)
1: it's it's more preoccupation seeking. Yes. we're really talking about longing and terror right up alongside each other. And that's really the more common presentation from the survivors. And it feels very chaotic and disorganizing.
0: Right. Right. That makes sense. And when you say that the partners, the, um, kind of the poison and the remedy at the same time, you know. It's it's actually in a song, <laughs> you oh, know. Song? <laughs> right. It is not even really that. You know, maybe the partner hasn't even done. So in some cases, maybe the partner has, you know, been a source of of pain in the relationship. But sometimes they're they're that source of danger because the client has had that trauma history where they've just learned to associate leaning on others is is dangerous and risky and not safe. And because you're the closest person to me and I've been hurt by other attachment figures, it's kind of like a transference of that danger to the partner.
1: And that really impacts the partner being seen yes. as or being villainized all the time and not understanding. Yes. And so that activates partner strategies, right? Of anger or withdrawal. And then that really reinforces a, perhaps a core view of self as being unlovable and bad. And so we're, we're actually re not we the the effects of trauma are really reinforced then and the couple is entrenched in these just absorbing negative states so trauma can kick off a cycle but it can also perpetuate and maintain it and uh shape partners' strategies around it
0: man we could talk all day about this but i know that uh we don't have all day to talk about it so you know it's important guys to get trained and sylvia you do happen to offer trainings and now can folks do you have a website do you have books you have podcast trainings videos tell us tell us what you have
1: wonderful well thank you annabelle and um yes i do think that Further training and reading and learning about trauma is really important for us to understand um, and work effectively with it and some of the considerations. I am doing a training in trauma um, where we do a much deeper dive into all the things we talked about today and a bit more uh, with Michael Barnett, May 17th and 18th in New Orleans I don't think the link is up for that yet, but um, it will be shortly. And you can find that on my website at DrSylvinaIrwin.com. I also have the EFT Resource Center where I offer trainings and workshops, uh, workshops for couples, but also for professionals. And that's EFTResourceCenter.com. And then lastly, LACEFT. You know, we're we're always working to bring really good workshops. Um, I've done the trauma seminar with them. Um, I know Sue has an excellent book on trauma, and uh, if you go to the ICEF website, there's great articles, um, and we have EFT research with PTSD, with uh, sexual abuse, and military vets, so um, I highly recommend folks trolling around the
0: ICEF website and <laughs> find some of that. Excellent, excellent. So, and I'm going to put the links to your websites that you mentioned on the description for this video so that you guys can find it because folks could really also, in essence, contact you guys and say, hey, we'd like to have a training out in our area. What's it going to take to get you guys to come out? And you guys then Absolutely.
1: Yeah,
0: thank you. Perfect, perfect. So, well, thank you so much for being with us today, and, you know, I'm already thinking of some ideas on uh, maybe some other parts we can do with you, so I hope that you'll consider coming back with us again. I would love
1: to. Thank you. It's really
0: so, um, good. Well, thank you again so much, and thank you to our viewers. We appreciate you watching and for all of your wonderful feedback, and of course, I'm always open to requests if you have special questions, but Make sure that you guys check out Sylvina's website, that you check out some of her resources. They are excellent. The trauma training is fabulous. I've attended it myself. It is excellent. So, and if you're interested in having it in your area, just get in touch with Sylvina or Michael Barnett and they'd be happy to work something out with you guys. So make sure that you guys subscribe because more videos are on the way.